Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast, EMS History, Myth, and Media. This is the second episode about some myths, some misconceptions about EMS and emergency medicine. I really thank you for listening if you're a worker in EMS and or emergency medicine, or if you just have an interest in this topic. Let's dig into some of those things which are commonly believed about EMS, but which unfortunately are not true. If you haven't already listened to the previous episode, Myths 1, about some misconceptions and myths about EMS and emergency medicine, I recommend that you listen to it after you listen to this one. This is Myths 2. Well, when I planned this podcast series, I wanted to cover some of the things which fascinate me about medical practice, the history of medicine in general, and emergency medicine in particular, and how TV and movies have represented emergency services, and lastly, some myths which persist about my chosen specialty. I've done several episodes about historical aspects of EMS and emergency medicine, a couple of episodes about specific TV shows centered on emergency services, and now I'm getting around to covering some of those myths. Here are some other myths I didn't cover in Myths 1. First, let me say that emergency medicine is a real specialty. There's this persistent myth that we're just some doctors who cover the emergency department because we have to. Other specialists rarely show up in the emergency department. Some specialties regularly come in, particularly if they'll be taking the patient to some definitive care, such as the operating room or the cardiac catheterization suite. In reality, we emergency physicians are the only doctors in the emergency department for the vast majority of the time. On TV shows or in the movies, various specialists always seem to be hanging out in the emergency department, ready to give their opinions and perform their interventions rapidly. As I mentioned in the episode on the TV show ER, initially in that show, there were no emergency physicians in the department at all. All of the characters were from some other specialty, and many of the principal characters were residents in some other specialty who appeared to be running the emergency department. This was because the writer of the script, which eventually became the show ER, was Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton began writing while he was in his medical school and residency training in the 1960s, which was before emergency medicine was a thing. He actually trained at a time when residents indeed ran the emergency department in teaching hospitals. Because of his success as a writer, he never practiced medicine, and he didn't keep up with the advances in emergency medicine. His script about ER sat unused and was not updated for years before eventually becoming used as the basis for the TV show. In the 1990s, emergency medicine was not understood by the public as its own specialty, and unfortunately, some people still don't recognize that we have a set of unique skills and capabilities. Likewise, many other doctors, perhaps because they recall that month they spent in the emergency department in their first year of residency, are certain that they could step right in and perform as an emergency physician. As I said before, many other specialists rarely come in and might even have difficulty finding the emergency department in the hospital. Many have never set foot in the department. In my over 30 years experience in emergency departments, there are a few specialties which I cannot recall ever coming to an emergency department. Again, surgeons regularly come in, especially surgeons involved in trauma who come in during trauma codes, 
orthopedists less commonly come in, and cardiologists sometimes come in when patients are having heart-related issues such as infarctions or heart rhythm disturbances. The whole idea was that the patient was likely in imminent need of a procedure, a surgery, an orthopedic procedure, or a heart catheterization as examples. In all of these cases, however, the emergency physician had already done the initial evaluation, identified the need for an intervention, and contacted the other specialist of that imminent need. In most of the cases, the emergency physician had already done the initial stabilization and may have already started the treatments before the other specialist arrived. The myth needs to be finally put to rest. I've mentioned that people in the past that emergency physicians know about 60% of the information of other specialties, and they know 100% of the emergency aspects of all those specialties. I challenge any other specialist to know 60% of what we know in emergency medicine because we aren't limited to a certain age or sex of our patient or any particular organ system or even what the patient's complaint is. We have a very broad base of knowledge and procedures we can perform. Many of our interventions, such as airway intubation, are not performed except by particular other specialists such as anesthesiologists. Now let's go to the next myth. We don't have privileges elsewhere in the hospital. We cannot admit, we can't treat patients on the floors of the hospital, and we don't take patients to the operating room. What we do is present the details to the admitting doctors and attempt to convince them that they should assume responsibility for the patient's care. Sometimes we suggest what they do next for the patient, but we aren't, however, involved in the ongoing care of the patient after they leave the emergency department. Unfortunately, in most cases, we don't even get updates on what happened to the patient after they leave the ER. Our practice is limited to within the walls of our department. Now, in some small hospitals, there may not be another doctor in the building, especially at night, so the emergency physician must respond to emergencies elsewhere in the hospital. I did deliver a few babies in labor and delivery in a small hospital because the obstetrician didn't arrive before the baby did. In hospitals where there are no residents being taught, and thus no doctors responsible for in-hospital cardiac arrest, it is common that the emergency physician responds to arrest situations in the hospital in general. Now, another myth. In the pre-hospital setting, EMTs and paramedics have physician-directed protocols they follow. There's a misconception that EMTs and paramedics are on their own and decide what treatment to give the patient on their own. For some 17 years, I was on a state committee to set and edit protocols for ambulance and helicopter care prior to arrival at the hospital. My state, West Virginia, is one of 12, at last count, who have statewide protocols. Some states, maybe 40% of them, have state protocols, but they are superseded by other sets of protocols, uh, either basic uh, to their counties, metropolitan areas, or individual emergency agencies, which they use instead of the statewide protocols. EMTs and paramedics don't make up treatments they're performing. They follow algorithms. If this situation presents, then you do this treatment intervention. They do have some latitude in deciding 
how to perform the extrication, the stabilization, and they are responsible for assessing the story and evaluating the patient to make a preliminary diagnosis so that the proper set of interventions can be started. They do what they do most of the time because the situation clearly dictates what treatment is indicated. In situations which are less clear, EMTs and paramedics have the ability to contact medical command, to talk to an online medical command physician and get orders to do something. In many situations, because the treatment is sufficiently dangerous, the pre-hospital person is obligated to speak to a medical command physician before initiating certain procedures. Typically in those cases, the paramedic tells the medical command physician the situation, where they are in the protocol, and request the intervention, which is the next step in the protocol, but which requires a physician order. So the reality is that EMTs and paramedics are aided in their efforts by two levels of guidance. First, the protocols listing what they should do in a given situation, which we call offline direction, things they can do without a physician order. And second, direction from directly calling in and taking orders from a physician, termed online direction. And now for one of the most disturbing admissions I'll make in this episode. Although resuscitation is one of the most dramatic of the things we do as pre-hospital and emergency department workers, the success of those efforts is distressingly poor. If you suffer a cardiopulmonary arrest in front of us, it's entirely likely that we'll bring you back. If the advanced interventions are not readily available within a few minutes of the arrest, the patient has only a low likelihood that the resuscitation will be successful. If the arrest occurs outside the hospital and the patient is not in an ambulance or on a monitor at the time of the arrest, chances are well under 5% that they'll make it. Around 20 years ago, those chances improved with the widespread availability of automatic electronic defibrillators, or AEDs. With AEDs, there is a life-saving intervention present in many public spaces. One of the things which kills people rapidly is that the electric rhythm of the heart becomes so abnormal that the heart's no longer pumping blood sufficiently to keep the body, in particular the brain, alive. If the bad rhythm can be electrically disrupted so that the productive electrical rhythm returns, and this is done very soon after the bad rhythm starts, the success is significantly more likely. I want at this point to give particular commendation to some people who were instrumental in getting AEDs into multiple public spaces. Here in West Virginia, a profoundly tragic event occurred some time ago. A local boy who was born with significant major heart blood vessel abnormalities survived a few surgeries in his infancy and and childhood to repair those congenital defects. In his teens, while he was doing some light exercise, he suffered an arrest. And although friends initiated CPR, it was some time before the squad arrived with a defibrillator, but by then it was too late and he didn't make it. Remarkably, spurred on by the tragedy that earlier defibrillation would have given her son a chance, his mother relentlessly lobbied until the state passed legislation ensuring that all public spaces in which many people gather would have at least one AED on site. Hundreds of people have been saved due to her efforts. Around that time, my best friend, with whom I do another podcast and who is the director of the emergency department, 
convinced the hospital-affiliated fitness facility to obtain an AED. They were initially reluctant to spend the money, but they did install one, and they used it for the first time within days to defibrillate a person. As I have pointed out in episodes about the history of EMS, advances such as this have incrementally improved the outcomes patients can expect in emergency situations. AEDs have turned out of the hospital cardiac arrests from nearly universal death sentences into situations in which the victims have a reasonable, though still low, chance of survival. Another recent advance came from two tragic circumstances, wars in the past two decades and the unfortunate occurrence in that time of multiple mass shooting events in this country. These have prompted the development of a public early trauma intervention. Stop the bleed kits, which contain a tourniquet, wound packing, and other life-saving devices, address another life-threatening frequent presentation, the victim of a gunshot or other penetrating injury in which massive bleeding will kill the person if not stopped as soon as possible. Wars have for centuries been the source of advances in emergency care, and now the scourge of public mass trauma events such as shootings has contributed to an advance in saving lives before advanced care can arrive. I have a Stop the Bleed kit in the glove compartment of my car, and I recommend them so that you might be able to stop the victim of an injury involving massive bleeding from dying until an ambulance can arrive and take over the next phase of their treatment. Well, this has been the second episode about myths in emergency services. There are several other myths and misconceptions or or urban legends, and I may do further episodes about this aspect of EMS and emergency medicine in the future. I really appreciate you for listening to my podcast, EMS History, Myth, and Media. I enjoy sharing information about things which interest and fascinate me, and I have a wealth of experiences and decades of study about this aspect of medical care. I was in practice in EMS and emergency medicine since the early 1980s. Privacy issues, of course, prevent me from sharing some of the cool stories about individuals, but several people have suggested you should write a book. But without those case reports, it would not be nearly as much fun to read. I'll continue to share more general discussions about EMS in future episodes. Please continue to download my episodes. Thanks.